Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The long-awaited follow-up to his acclaimed 2011 Sundance film, Letters from the Big Man, Christopher Munch, The 11th Green, will be released on June 26th via Joma Films, a theatrical at-home platform, and in selected screens following that rollout. The film is called The 11th Green, rife with hidden government secrets and a matrix-like mind-bender. The 11th Green is grounded in what is widely believed to be the nuts and bolts of the core story of the post-U.S. military and government involvement with UFO events. In this way, the film sketches a possible backdrop to recent revelations in the mainstream media and the subsequent declassification of certain U.S. military interactions with UFOs. Our entry point into this film is the interactions of Dwight David Eisenhower, President of the United States, the 34th President of the United States, the Supreme Allied Commander of World War II during a post-presidential winter in 1967 in his striking mid-century home in Palm Desert, Ike finds himself revisiting the ghosts of his past. The film, again, is called The Eleventh Green, and we're joined today by the director of the film, and that would be Christopher Munch. Christopher, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you. Well, it is a fascinating story, and uh, there's a disclaimer at the very beginning of the film about some of this, by virtue of telling the story, is speculation. How do you put it in the, in the disclaimer at the beginning of the film that it's some parts of the story are speculative. However, the core of the story in, is basically based on fact. Yes, yes, that, that's what we strove for with the film. Aspects of it are speculative, uh, but they seem to conform with what is generally thought to be the, uh, the core story, as it were. Help me out here. Help me. How can you explain the film and sort of get people... Sure. Well, there has been a kind of urban legend uh, in existence since the 1950s, uh, a persistent folklore, if you will, that on one or more occasions, uh, Dwight Eisenhower met with representatives of alien civilizations. And the origin of that story appears to be, appears to have been a letter from the mystic and lecturer Gerald Light uh, to uh, his publisher and colleague, uh, in which he talked about it seeming imminent that Eisenhower uh, was going to release information about this subject, that in fact he had uh, left um, uh, Palm Desert where he was playing golf, uh, not in his post-presidential home, but uh, had been there for another purpose and had gone to Murak uh, Air Base in California, which is now called Edwards Air Base, and at that place had met with representatives of another civilization. Um, this was alleged to have happened in 1954, and it's unsubstantiated apart from Gerald Light's letter. Um, there was another incident that is suggested happened uh, uh, a year or two later. Uh, the researcher Art Campbell talked about uh, Eisenhower, again, being on a golfing trip, this time to, uh, to Georgia, uh, and having left in the midst of that to go to Holloman Air Base uh, to meet with representatives of, of an extraterrestrial civilization. So this folklore has been around since the 1950s. What interested me most about this 
hypothetical story is not so much uh, whether the facts added up or not, but the emotional what if involving President Eisenhower, a man who was generally, generally regarded as not having had an enormous uh, ego uh, or predisposition to power, despite the fact that he had led the Allies uh, uh, in World War II to victory in Europe. Uh, he was head of Allied ex uh, Expeditionary Forces. Um, and subsequently, he headed NATO uh, after the war and was president of Columbia University. Uh, at that point, he was really ready, ready to retire by the early 1950s. But again, he was drafted into the presidency. In effect, he, he uh, enthusiastically embraced that role. His health throughout the presidency was not so great. Uh, his body certainly took a toll. Um, and it wasn't entirely clear if he was going to be able to even serve a second term. However, he, he did. And uh, in his post-presidential years, he spent every winter in Palm Desert, California. And it is during one of these post-presidential winters in 1967 that I have uh, situated the story. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that story, Eisenhower is in effect revisiting the ghosts of his past. Uh, a phone call from one of President Johnson's cabinet secretaries triggers uh, a series of events uh, in which he recalls uh, an individual uh, from another civilization whom he met uh, in, in the flesh, <laughs> physiologically speaking, in the 1950s. And uh, at this time in the story, however, his contacts with this individual are in a kind of uh, out of time dream space and into this, this dream space enter other, <laughs> other story elements. Right. No, thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, the film is sort of multi-tracked, right? We've got, we're following um, Jeremy Rudd's story and his relationship with his father, which sort of ended many years, and we find out that his father has died. That gets him to into the story where he is, he's gone to Palm Desert to claim his father's remains, and, and essentially, in some ways, archaeologically uh, sort of dig into his father's past, try to fi figure out a lot of things about uh, what he was doing, and along the way, he, we, meet, we start meeting people who knew his father and are um, trying to guide him in a certain direction in terms of the story they want him to hear. Correct, yes, and, and our protagonist, uh, as you say, Campbell Scott, who portrays Jeremy Rudd, uh, our protagonist sets out for California, not with the intention of unearthing these secrets, but really uh, uh, on a journey to uh, come to terms with his relationship with his estranged father. And uh, it's during the course of that and during the course of his reporting on an aerospace story, in fact, uh, that is related to all this, uh, the story of a contemporary uh, aircraft maker who uh, is seeking to um, move a, uh, an exotic technology from the black world of uh, uh, classified aerospace programs into commercial aviation. It's in the course of his reporting on that that he backs into information concerning this alleged historical sequence of events involving President Eisenhower. Yeah, there's a lot going on in the film. I, I think you really need to, to pay attention because a lot of things uh, intersect. They sort of, in the course of the, the storytelling, uh, they overlap in certain points and they're very, it's very important to telling a story. And I wanna talk about the story, but I also think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the, the folklore a little more. 
Well, yes, uh, one of my entry points into this story was a short film I made a number of years ago called Return to Electra Springs, which dealt with the subject of suppressed exotic energy technology and an outcast MIT inventor who, uh, well, he's involved in a natural disaster, and but by way of that reconnects with his passion for his work. In any case, I, I had a fair, uh, a fair understanding of some of the fascinating figures who have been in that world of exotic energy technology and, and have attempted to introduce some of this into the world. And as a result of that, the idea that UFO events uh, overlap with uh, exotic energy and propulsion technology uh, was probably my, my entry point in, into this story, um, in addition to the emotional what if uh, involving President Eisenhower and how this man would have reacted to uh, these events and the path that he chose uh, if he had reflected back on them at the end of his life. Mm -hmm. So in terms of, you know, what technology uh, exists within these black programs, it's, it's very hard to say because they are so opaque. Um, there was a fair amount of work in the open literature, uh, described in the open literature in the 1950s concerning uh, so-called gravity control propulsion or, or, or counter barriers as it was known. And there were figures like uh, Townsend Brown and uh, Paul Byfield, who were responsible for the so-called Byfield-Brown effect, or for naming it anyway, uh, who had been experimenting for, for many, many years. There's a, a writer, uh, a physicist named Paul LaViolette, who wrote a book on, on this subject, uh, tracing the evolution of some of these suspected or alleged technologies. Uh, also a, a wonderful uh, aerospace journalist wrote a book called uh, The Hunt for Zero Point in the early 2000s. And, uh, this also, again, traced some of these possible developments. There have been little drips and drabs of suggestion, uh, such as a, an article in Aviation Week in the 1990s involving the B-2 Spirit Bomber, suggesting that it incorporated certain exotic technology, uh, more specifically a certain type of uh, high voltage electrostatic charge across the leading edge of the wing that produced an electrogravitic effect and was a performance enhancer for what was otherwise a conventional uh, jet engine. So these tidbits are out there. There is also a whole group of individuals uh, who are informants, uh, some call them whistleblowers, I prefer to call them informants, who have testified to various pieces of the puzzle, who have, as you say, possibly worked uh, at Groom Lake or possibly worked at other national labs or classified facilities where this work was allegedly going on. So there is a healthy body of, of material out there, a lot of which is not accurate. One of the big challenges for anybody really trying to become knowledgeable about this subject or about the vast topic of UFOs in general uh, whether or not you subscribe to the so-called extraterrestrial hypothesis is simply the amount of bad information that's out there. So it really takes a concerted effort for the public to seek out the really best literature and digest it. And unfortunately, a lot of the people who are advocates in this field present uh, speculative information as if it were factual, even mm -hmm. though it may very well be factual. Nevertheless, it doesn't really inspire the public to do their own reckoning and uh, to dig more deeply themselves into what 
is the truth of, of the situation. So that's a circuitous answer to your question about the existence of exotic technology. There is the existence of exotic technology to what degree it originated with crashed flying saucers, you know, is, is speculative, highly speculative at this point. Probably some of it did, but probably most of it really is the result of human ingenuity and the result of, um, a lot of money being spent on research and development in the classified world. And uh, a bone of contention, or what should be a bone of contention, is that none of that uh, really is available for practical applications. I, thank you so much for indulging me. Thank you for that answer. Uh, the um, documentary I was referring to was uh, Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers. Bob Lazar is the engineer that was that claims to have seen extraterrestrial beings and had was right. was bear witness to the technology so again that's completely off our our, our conversation but i i wanted to make sure yeah I'm yeah lazar is one of the most famous uh, one of the most famous informants and certainly the the person who who in effect put area 51 on the map from the public's perspective yeah. although it had existed you know for 50 years at that point uh, as a facility of the Atomic Energy Commission and uh, the CIA, which utilized it for testing, uh, uh, testing its spy planes. Okay. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And let's get back to the purpose of our conversation okay. to talk about the 11th Green. And again, I, let's go back to uh, Campbell Scott, who you mentioned is the lead in it. And he is really terrific. I think he really kind of embodies um, this kind of, He's a journalist, he's a very serious journalist, and it's something that really matters to him that he get to the bottom of whatever the truth it is he's seeking. That seems to be his character's sort of drive, if you will. Uh, and he's not interested in a lot of superfluous things that may be going on beyond his particular uh, goal. And it drives his character, it drives the, the storyline. And also uh, Agnes uh, Buckner, who plays Laurie, is also key, a key part of the story as well. Tell me a little bit about sort of in your, in making of the 11th grade, sort of developing the relationships and developing these characters. Well, one of the challenges of making the 11th green uh, at the script writing stage was integrating the large amount of information that the storyline would contain with the emotional storyline of Jeremy and his love affair with, with Lori Larkspur, uh, played by uh, Agnes Bruckner. So it was a balancing act for sure, but at the end of the day, the emotional core of the story uh, needed to take precedence over the information. And for that reason, I began the story with the death of, of Jeremy's father, uh, Nelson Rudd, who's played by Monty Markham in the film. So the interweaving, in effect, of different time periods uh, and different characters was an attempt to integrate the informational aspect of the historical story with the contemporary emotional journey of, of Jeremy and the people around him. Yeah, and you did a terrific job. At, and also we have Dwight Eisenhower played by George Gerdes, who not only uh, does he look like Dwight Eisenhower, but he also has the bearing of Eisenhower. It, the, the performance you got from him felt like I remember, I'm, a, I'm just old enough to remember when Eisenhower was out of office, but nonetheless, I remember him being around for a period of time and this sort of calming um, presence, sort of this, the countenance that he had as a person um, was, like I said, it was a, he's a very calming kind of person and that's the way he comes across in the film. 
as someone who was level-headed and obviously seen a lot in his life. And I thought he did a, I thought you were able to make him part of the story in a way that was at its core, this has to be believable. This Absolutely. Easily have spun completely off the rails if, you were, if your characters weren't as grounded as they are in the film. Yes, yes. And George, my hat is off to him because I think he really did a superb job uh, portraying this man who was at this point in his life, certainly an elder statesman and somebody who was consulted frequently by uh, the leaders of the time, uh, whether they be presidents or people in the military. And he carried a great, a great responsibility with that position of elder statesman. And I think George did a remarkable job of capturing also this uh, very private, uh, mystical even, I would dare say, aspect of Eisenhower that intersects with the UFO phenomenon. Um, so our goal was on the one hand to show a certain level of domesticity uh, in his retirement with Mamie, a certain realistic domesticity uh, that would have existed on one of those winter stays, excuse me, in Palm Desert. And on the other hand, to show this deep reckoning taking place in him and largely in his dreams, uh, having to do with what might have been uh, had he had he gone down a different course with respect to uh, the information surrounding UFOs and visitation of other worlds. Um, but my hat is off to George. It, it's not an easy role to play. He was such Eisenhower was such an iconic figure. Uh, a number of very distinguished actors have played him in the past, uh, including Robert Duvall, of course, um, Tom Selleck, even E.G. Marshall, uh, John Slattery. So it's it's and, I, and in my opinion, George does a better job than any of them did as, as fine as some of those actors are or were. And I think for me, the key to that, to this making that work is it's not sensationalizing it. Yes, we worked very hard for it to be matter of fact and to to have his performance be believable and not hyperbolic or not caricaturish. I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Christopher Munch. He is the director of a new film called The 11th Green, and it is out as of June 27th, the release through uh, Joma Films, uh, and you'll be able to go to the filmschoolradio.com website to find the link for that. So your sixth feature release, um, in terms of uh, a project like this, I imagine that in a pitch, this is probably not the easiest film to distill down into a, a what they call the elevator pitch. Uh, so what is it like for you as a filmmaker in terms of when you want to make a very ambitious film, a very ambitious story, but what are the challenges you face when you do that? Well, I have a track record of, of making films that are, <laughs> that are not necessarily easy to, to fund. So the experience of producing the features I've made has actually been remarkably consistent and usually it entails spending uh, a period of time, usually several years, looking for money in all the conventional ways, uh, going about it in the way that you think is going to work um, by attracting talent to the film that is commercially meaningful and would enable you to uh, find uh, capital for it. Um, in this case, as in the case of the other films, that, that didn't work. Uh, so we knew that we would have to make the film on a very limited budget. And so that's where I guess the experience helps uh, in being able to determine how best to allocate those limited resources 
uh, and how to be flexible in the storytelling to accommodate what you have access to or don't have access to. Um, so I've never been an advocate of, of constraining um, the dimensions of storytelling for the sake of a low budget. Uh, rather, I've tended to approach it from the standpoint of telling the story in an optimal way and then figuring out a way to do it with whatever money is available uh, or whatever other resources are available. And I've found that although it's been difficult that way, um, it's resulted in work that I'm happy with, uh, that I didn't feel was uh, you know, pandering or, or playing to a lower, lowest common denominator. For better or worse, the type of movie making that I practice is not really in vogue at this time. It tends to be more classical in its construction and pacing. It's not flashy. So it, it's difficult all around. And then on top of that, this particular subject matter I have found <laughs> since the film has been completed, and this is really an extension of the kind of indifference I found in trying to finance the film. One thing that one comes up against is this idea of there being a real barrier in a lot of people to seeing this subject matter treated in a realistic, dramatic way. Um, people are so accustomed to the so-called giggle factor when it comes to UFOs. They're so accustomed to relegating it to genre filmmaking, to science fiction or fantasy, that when you present them with a fairly realistic take on the subject, it kind of falls on deaf ears among a lot of smart people who I think are so thoroughly indoctrinated into the idea that an acknowledgement of the reality of UFOs equates in some way with their being less smart or being perceived as being less smart. It is a very thorough indoctrination that has taken place with the help of the media, but really this is all just a reflection of humanity's readiness or lack of readiness to assimilate the information. I mean, the existence of UFOs is an empirical fact. They exist, they, that's been proven beyond any shadow of a doubt. What many people have a problem with is the so-called extraterrestrial hypothesis and the origin of these UFOs, which is completely speculative. You know, you can subscribe to the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which seems like a likely explanation for some of these, uh, some of these phenomena, but Ultimately, the conflation of those two things has led to the dismissal outright of all information concerning UFOs. Um, the journalist and writer Leslie Keane, who was uh, responsible for some of the reporting that the New York Times did between 2017 and 2019 concerning the U.S. Navy's engagement with uh, UAPs off of off of the California coast and elsewhere, uh, the so-called uh, Nimitz events, uh, of which video was released. You know, she described it, uh, she described society's unwillingness to take UFOs seriously as being an efficiently metastasized cancer in society. Uh, it is so thoroughly embedded in us that how that changes is going to be very interesting. And, and I think one, <clears throat> excuse me, one can look at the trial balloons, as it were, that American presidents have floated. Uh, President Trump just floated one last week on Father's Day uh, concerning UFOs and aliens, which is fascinating. Um, and we dramatize one of these uh, one of these trial balloons where our Obama-like character is being interviewed on a talk show. So when you see the giggle factor still very much alive in society, you wonder you know, how the reality of UFOs is ever going to be uh, 
widely accepted. Well, well, Christopher, that's really, you got to the heart of why I was so hesitant to ask you at the beginning of our conversation about it, because this is a, this is a factor in, for me, asking you a question about it for fear that I would say something insulting or, and or ridiculous, or, or that I was trying to back you into some kind of a corner. I, this is what's going through my mind and my thought process. When, I'm stuck, when I talked to someone, when I was having this conversation with Jeremy Corbell about the, his documentary, it, you're, you're absolutely right. It puts, it puts both sides, me as someone asking questions, in this weird little box. Like I feel like I don't want to sound crazy if you will, by asking the question of you about this particular topic. And absolutely couldn't agree more uh, about the metastasization of that uh, in, our, in our culture. And I also think there's kind of a God question in all of this. Sort of the God question of, well, there's extraterrestrials and we've been told, it's kind of like what uh, um, the Catholic Church in the, in the Middle Ages saying that, that the planets revolve, the sun revolves around the earth. Either, it, I feel like it's in that continuum of, you're kidding, right? You must be nuts to even, so you, am I, is this making, am I making sense to you right now? There's just so many things you've said in your answer that ring true to me in terms well, of- Well, sure, yes. I, yeah, the phenomenon is certainly disruptive on a philosophical and, and religious level. Yeah. Uh, there was a landmark uh, document, a report that was actually issued in 1960 by uh, the Brookings Institution uh, that was commissioned by NASA uh, that involved the polling of the public about what the effects of contact with an extraterrestrial race would be in history. And it was entirely unclear, the results of that poll were unclear that it would be beneficial at, th at that time in history. However, now, you know, uh, 60 years later, we're in a much different place in society. And uh, we really need to integrate that information into our identity as, as humans. Every day there's uh, stories about uh, exoplanets that are, am I saying that correctly? Exoplanets that are within a reasonable, in terms of the, the universe that we know, aren't that far away. The idea that we now know that there is life on other planets, whether or not it's, it, it's, it looks like us or it doesn't, there are, there's enough evidence. And I, to your point, I think the, the uh, general public, the educated public understands that for us to think otherwise would be ridiculous, to think that of this vast universe, there's nothing else out there that we could have um, some kind of a communication with is ridiculous. Yes. This has been an amazing conversation, Christopher. The film, again, is called The 11th Grain and I enjoyed it. I thought it was wonderful. Just as you said, you've described it beautifully. This idea, the story, it plays out as you would imagine it would in an adult world. <laughs> well, that's, that's a nice way of describing it. I, I think of it sort of as uh, a thinking person's version of Project Blue Book, which was a, a hyperbolic uh, series on the History Channel last year that takes the life of the astronomer Alan Hynek and uh, bloats it out. <laughs> Into, okay. uh, into a science fiction. Uh, oh. Well, I, I appreciated what you did here. And I, again, I, I'll just quickly mention Campbell Scott. We, we mentioned um, Agnes Bruckner and others uh, in the film who do a terrific job all around. And um, my, my best to you, my best to uh, the, uh, the soon to be released, the 11th Green. 
And as I said earlier, it's going to be available on Jamo Films and will be a, a link to that at the filmschoolradio.com website for more information about the film and about where you can see it. And thank you. I just want to say thank you, not only for the film, but thank you for this conversation. I really can't wait to talk to you more. So next time you've got something, please, please, please let me know. I would love to have you back on the program. This is a fascinating, fascinating man. Thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.